Welcome to another episode of the Snap No Tap podcast. I'm Tony Cicchini along with Joe Cardinal. And we have a very, very big surprise guest. Well, he's probably not a surprise now. You guys can, uh, those who are watching us on YouTube know who he is already. But for those that are listening, you don't know who he is yet. But let me kick it back a few steps. We've been on a roll. So like two episodes ago, we had one of the nation's finest musicians on. Last week, we had one of my students and one of the, I've said it, I believe one of the finest kickboxers in the country. And how could he not be great? He's, he was trained by Bill Superfoot Wallace for so many years. And then today on our 100th episode, we have one of the country's absolute best submission grapplers on. You've heard me recommend him to you people before. It's an honor to have him. He's a living legend. Believe it or not, he is awesome to have you. Welcome, Mr. Eric Paulson, to the podcast. What an honor. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're really excited. This is great. Way way to make it a 100th episode. This is awesome. Wow. You know, it's funny. The 100th 100th episode, uh, that was like the 100th anniversary of the UFC. I cornered Brock for the 100th, and it was such a big deal. Wow, that is huge. Kind of quink-a-dinkle that I... I get to be on the hundredth episode. Or the 100th. You're Mister. You're Mister. One Hundred. Yeah. Everybody's good luck charm for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joe, you you've got a whole bunch of uh, questions lined up. Why don't you Why don't you have at it, man? Well, it's usually weird because normally I kind of come at it with the assumption that we're going to have to tell everybody where you're from or let's get the basic story. And it's like everybody who listens to this podcast is going to know, you know, but I always feel like I should just rehash things and like start at the beginning. Actually, before the, we actually started recording, we started talking about your background. You're originally from Minnesota. Is that right? Yep. I was born and raised in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. And I, at 19, <laughs> I packed my bags to come to California for uh, martial arts with Dan and Asano and, and, uh, college and, uh, modeling and acting at the time. <laughs> I'm still working on getting my modeling career going. No such luck yet, but, uh, still that's do, awesome. hey, <laughs> you do hair, you could do nails, you could do your smile. I got it all. Yeah. I'm a trifecta. <laughs> I got, um, but that's interesting. Cause I, I was actually reading up on your profile that, so when you moved to Minnesota, which is really cool. So you had already been in, involved enough in martial arts that at 19, you're like, I'm going to relocate to train with Inosano. Cause I think obviously, it, but, but was it like the early eighties when, when you did that or late seventies? It was uh, 80, 1986. Okay. So like mid eighties. I graduated, I, mean, I graduated 84. And then in 1986, I packed my bags. I, I went to spring break. I went out to uh, visit my aunt. She lived in India and Palm desert. And I went visit her 
and I was like, man, California. I went, I went there for Christmas, and I came home with a beautiful tan, and everyone's like, <laughs> wow. And I go, I think I want to move to the sunny, the sunny city. I need to get out of the cold winters. Uh, and uh, that was before that was before they had the electronic uh, car starters. Uh, you know, the, oh, so you could warm up your car in the house. <laughs> yeah, all my friends in New York have those. They start their car up a half hour before they get in it. It's all toasty and warm. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. Obviously, being in the Chicago area, we've got it cold, but it's nowhere near as cold as Minnesota. Oh my god! Because you guys even like in the buildings have like basically those hamster tubes to get from building to building to avoid getting out, right? I that's mean, right. that's that's a bad news. Yeah, yeah, that's a bad sign. If you're going to a city where you have to, you're, you're, you don't want to cross the street because it's so cold. Oh, man. That, well, we're that's... talking February, January, February, March. It's January, February is the coldest time there usually. Oh, yeah, it's brutal here too. It's, you guys, because was... of Lake Michigan, you get a, a ton of cold weather there too also, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's the kind of cold that starts to burn. It, it's not cold anymore. The wind just like burns a layer off your skin. And it's, it's yeah, it's, and I'm actually kind of more upset just thinking about it. Right now. I'm going to be heading you know back. I, into- I, if you ask me, I think I think Midwesterners, because of the weather half the year, they get they their skin gets preserved a lot better, and so mm-hmm. I think it, it makes makes them look more youthful. That's what Possibly. I've noticed. Yeah, we definitely don't get any of that. Like we're indoors for half the year because it's just horrible, and so we probably don't. You know. Uh, Although we're pale as a ghost often, so when you see us, you know we'll be, we'll be like that's, a, a, that's what tanning boots and uh, ta- ta- um, the tanning gel is for. Exactly, Tony knows all about the tanning boots. He's Mister Tanning oh, Boots. We used to have one at my gym. Remember? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so great. I, I was originally from Cleveland, and and I moved to Chicago, kind of similar with you, but I not for modeling or acting, but for uh, music because I was already had already done most of my training and shit, but. Uh, so I understand that. And I, you said you moved in 86. I moved to Chicago in 87. So wow. there's a, yeah. Now I'm a couple of years older than you because I graduated in 82. So I was okay. like 20. Yeah, I was 23 when I moved here. Um, wow. But yeah, but there's similarities. But yeah, the weather, the winter in Cleveland. Oh, man. Because Cleveland sits directly below Lake Erie. So we got all, we were on what was called the snow belt. Probably like you guys, we would get, it would be nothing for us to get 20, 25 inches of snow. That's right. Oh. That's just like Minnesota used to yeah. be. And then, and then my friends all sold their snowmobiles and I said, why'd you sell that? Why? And they go, we haven't had snow here for about seven years. Wow. No kidding. Wow. But then, it, then it started coming back again. I think it's just cyclical. Yeah, probably. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's hard it's to tell. Change. Uh-huh. For sure. Well, that's interesting for, I did not know that you were into the modeling and the acting. So I, I got a question before I forget it. What, when you were thinking about being an actor, was it an action movie or just any, any part? Uh, most, in the beginning, it was commercial work. So I, I was doing, so I was doing a lot of swimwear stuff and I was doing, um, uh, I used to do, <laughs> I don't like to talk about it, but I, I used to do a lot of fashion shows uh, so I had really nice clothes because I used to get sponsored by all these companies. And then I get photo photo work for catalogs. And I used to do some swimwear and underwear stuff. And then uh, and then I said, you know, I, I don't really want to do this. I want to 
kind of break into the commercial acting and then and then mm-hmm. get into the the method acting and then get into the comedy and I love comedy that was I, I wanted to be a comedian oh but then I, I started researching all these famous comedians and I noticed that later on in their lives I was looking at their lives later and a lot of them were really sad uh very depressed and you know it, it I think they were forcing jokes out. Everything was like forced and it wasn't, you know, I, I liked it when it was organic, but later on, I, I felt like there was a lot of sad people in that industry at that time. Anyways, I'm talking uh, late eighties. Okay. There's, there's definitely a group of comedians that I think uh, stand up or whatever there is. It's a, like almost like a form of therapy for them. Oh, you sure. Know? And you can, you can almost hear the, the, the pathos in their jokes. You know, it's, I mean, it's like, because for a lot of people, humor is a defense mechanism, you know, and so they're dealing oh. with pain and, and yeah, coping. And, and so, you know, if they're a smart person and a lot of times, honestly, I think like very intelligent people, sometimes uh, they can kind of spiral with their mental health. And I, and please don't I have no mental health background or professional. I'm just like rambling here. But I get I can see that where like certain comedians, you know, there's a darkness sometimes to their humor. Um, it's, it's a lot of like like some of the musicians, some of the best music comes from some of the most tormented souls some of the best a lot of art, a lot, yeah a lot of art in general i think a, a lot of creative you know um you know i've mentioned on this podcast a couple of times before like you know i love the original conan stories by uh robert e howard and he he committed suicide you know very early and he was a brilliant writer had this bright future ahead of himself but it was almost like you know i often and we don't know no one talked to him he never left a letter you know those things uh but you just think when you have that powerful of a mind, a creative mind, if you get fixated on something that's because there's a lot of sadness out there, let's face it, you know, the, the world can be a tragic place. And I think if whether either is happening to your personal life or you're just awareness of the world around you, I think uh, it can it can go it can go badly for a lot of those creative types. And it's uh, or, you know, very intellectual types. So it's it, yeah. It's, and I think the entertainment industry in general can be very risky. I mean, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of access to things. Um, so it, it's definitely can, it can have a clearly, I mean, we've all heard the stories, you know, of all the, the great stars who've, you know, crashed and burned and left us too early. So it's Look at it, Frank Frazetta, Frank Frazetta's work. A lot of his art is very dark, but it's pretty cool. It's like the Conan. It's amazing. Conan. Oh yeah. I love his stuff. So you look at some of it, you go, Whoa, that's pretty dark. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Stuff. But you know, I also worked at a, jazz rhythm and blues club i was a bartender for uh almost nine years at this place in la in venice and we had some of the best musicians from jazz rhythm and blues come in and play regular it it is kind of weird because i wasn't i wasn't like a huge fan at first and then i was trying to figure out who these people were that were coming in playing regularly we had king cotton stanley barons and uh all these guys would come in and get up on stage and play and it was just amazing to be a witness to that you know uh while i was trying to you know uh come into my own with my own career and uh you know hustling to get acting uh, parts you know auditioning um for for parts but also training hard at the same time and trying to uh, figure out what I was going to do, if I was going to go the acting route or if I was going to go the martial arts route. Well, That's very cool. speaking of auditioning, now, how did you, did you have to audition to get with um, 
Well, how did you get with Danny Nassano? Let's just put it that way, because he's a legend of, of them all. Yeah. You know, he's a, wow. Danny Nassano. So let's see. So I, I, I was in, living in Palm Desert, and uh, there was no – there was nothing out there, just karate and boxing. So I was doing uh, taekwondo and boxing. And then all of a sudden, um, my friends were in Palm Springs, or they were in uh, going to Redlands and training with Tim Tackett in his garage. And they asked me if I'd be interested. So I started going into Tim Tackett's garage and found out that Tim Tackett was Dan Asano's student and was also – uh, Rick Fay from Minnesota, Rick Fay's uh, friend and student, or not student, but teacher. Rick trained with Sifu Tackett. And then it was a bounce from Redlands to L.A. And then I went to L.A. and I was doing privates with Benny the Jet Arquitas. Wow. Jet Center. And I drove by the Inasano Academy one day and I said, hey, uh, I wonder what they have going Because they always had specialty seminars going on on the weekends. And uh, they would have Bondo or Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. And this one time they had Yuri Nakamura. And this was in 1987. And Yuri Nakamura was teaching a Shudo seminar. And he was introducing Shudo to U.S., basically, or to, to America. And uh, it just had a picture of him punching, kicking, uh, grabbing somebody, uh, suplexing them, and then submitting them. And it just said, punch, kick, throw, submit. And that was the first seminar that I actually got to take at the Inasano Academy. Uh, I was also doing, I did the Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. I did C-Lot and uh, Nino Bernardo was there teaching Wing Chun. So I was trying to take all these things, but I really, I really wanted to try to fight because, you know, I had already had years of uh, striking and my brother is a wrestler. So we, uh, incidentally or accidentally, we used to wrestle in the living room which I say is America's favorite pastime. <laughs> I was a, I, hold on. I was a gymnast. I was oh. a gymnast. I wasn't a wrestler. So Greg Nelson and I were gymnasts competing against each other, but he wrestled too. But a lot of my, a lot of the wrestlers on my gymnastics team uh, were really cocky and brash and they, they weren't easy to get along with and they always wanted to fight. So kind of at that time had a little beef with a few guys not wrestling, but a few guys. And then my brother and I used to always argue what was better, kickboxing or, or wrestling. And I would usually try to kick him uh, in the head when I had a chance, and he'd just grab me and pick me up and slam me, and then we'd end up on the ground. <laughs> so I already knew that, you know, that the fight would end up there. And so I needed to learn to do something about it. And that, while I was in Tim Tackett's garage – he told me about the Gracie family, about these Brazilians that came to America that were that had an open challenge. And he said, you should go do some privates just to see what it's like and come back and, you know, report to us to see what it's like. And it was funny at the time, uh, Guru Dan and Asano, I was riding in the back of his car or his van as he was going teaching a college um, martial arts class at Harbor City College. And he was stating, and Larry Hartzell was in the van with us, and he said, you know, I'm looking at the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It looks like ground judo to me. It just looks like Nawaza. And he said, I don't see any difference. And I go, well, they have more emphasis, I think, more on their guard and stuff uh, than, than they do more more off their back than they did. Like judo had all the 
different positions and stuff, but they really focused more on their guard. That's what that was back then. So in 1987, 1988, I got to do a seminar with uh, Yuri Nakamura. And I remember my roommate was a bluebell under Hickson at the time. And I went and took the seminar on the weekend uh, in 1980, I think it was end of 87, early 88. And I remember I came home and I learned 30 new submissions and I couldn't, and I, my roommate and I both had, both his blue belts had the same amount of information. And I remember I came back and I had, uh, ankle locks, heel hooks, neck cranks, chicken wings. And it was at that time I was like, hold on a second. Nobody knows this stuff because all the guys, especially in South Bay, because it was, you know, the home of where Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was. Uh, that's how I got kind of shot into the whole wrestling, uh, catch wrestling. And, and I was doing both of them at the same time. I was doing Jiu-Jitsu silently and quietly. And I was going to the Shudo, uh, doing privates with Yuri Nakamura and the catch wrestling and then training with Larry Hartzell and then Gene LaBelle and trying to, to uh, learn as much as I could about that aspect of things. And then I became good friends with Rico Ciparelli and then uh, Rico and I traded catch wrestling for wrestling. So he, Rico is one of Dan Gable's guys. And next thing you know, uh, it, my grappling went more from jujitsu, more to a catch style uh, uh, with, with a, a lot more wrestling base. So I, I kind of got to get a little bit of both. And I also did judo when I was in 1974. I did judo when I was a kid and competed in that. But it was never, never the same uh, as training in the garage privately and then also getting to uh, learn the catch wrestling from Yuri. And Yuri's catch wrestling was uh, of Carl Gotch lineage. So I know Luthez, you're, you're under Luthez, right? And many others, right? Don't yes. You? Yeah. I, uh, Stanley Rodvon originally in Cleveland in the 70s. And then I met Lou later on. And Lou was like, you know, just a wonderful. I can't say enough good things about Luthez. Wow. But, you know, you mentioned Larry Hartzell. I just want to say quickly that I met him twice out here uh, when he was doing a seminar for an, another guy that I was training as well. Marcus. And Marcus Charles, yeah. And boy, I'll tell you something. Larry was, you can't ask to, you can't make a nicer human being than Larry Hartzell. We clicked. I mean, we just, boom. He was wow. so nice and easy to talk to. He uh, He's an ex-Vietnam vet. So, like, he he could go off sometimes and he loved the street fight you know yeah. uh, we would talk about the street fighting yeah <laughs> throw some beer in the mix and next thing you know yeah unfortunately i saw him no he wasn't drinking at this stage of, of his life was pretty much near the end oh uh, yeah that's, very unfortunate he was thin and uh, uh matter of fact he wanted me to make him a video of uh a knee, bar, knee bars and by the time i was able to film it he sadly had passed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I'm going to tell you, he, he really made an impression on me. Uh, just, you know, how we, we talked as if he talked to me as if he knew me for 40 years, telling me Bruce Lee stories and 
just stories that you know bouncing stories and ah it was great when when you click with him he he finds a common denominator and then he opens his heart he's from the south so he had that southern hospitality and you know he loved loved boxing loved boxing uh trained with bruce lee so he had the trapping he loved the collie but he really loved all the wrist locks and and the catch wrestling stuff. He really, that was his kind of his niche, what he loved. Well, you know, he, yeah. And that, so he, we had that in common, the boxing and the wrestling, the catch wrestling. So that's probably what you're saying, the self-defense aspect. So that's probably what you're saying. He found that common denominator because I never studied, uh, you know, collie or any stick and knife like that. So we didn't even talk about that. If he knows you're a boxer and a wrestler. Yeah. That's all you need to know about yeah. you. Yeah, he was. Now, tell me uh, your training. Like, give us a typical idea of, did you work out for a couple hours? Was it, you know, four hours or smaller sessions? I mean, how'd you approach it? Because you were, you were young enough then to probably had all the energy in the world. Yeah. Um, well, we used to morning was all striking and throwing so uh i i have to be at the gym at 8 a.m and and then we start with shadow boxing and uh leg swings and next thing you know you're in the ring and you got whatever 10 or 12 rounds of sparring of kickboxing and shoot boxing and then you got bag work focus mitts kicking shield and then ground bag and then then you go eat maybe take a nap if you had to then you Oh, my workouts were five shirt workouts. So I would go through at least five to eight shirts per workout. My shirts were completely wet. And that's how I rated my workout was the amount of t-shirts you'd go through. <laughs> Cause they were so, they were completely soaked. But, uh, so we go two hours and then we go to lunch, take a break. And then I go to a Marine athletic club and I would lift weights or jump in the swimming pool or I'd either go, bike riding, rollerblading, or uh, running, or swimming. And uh, Sifu Larry loved to, he loved the fact that I liked to go biking. So we go down, we would ride along the the ocean, go from Manhattan Beach to El Segundo. We would ride between uh, beaches. And I also loved to rollerblade. And and, uh, it's so funny, Larry would bring his rollerblades in his knapsack and carry him on board. And I remember I carried his bag one time. He had a green duffel bag and he goes, Todai, grab my bag. So I picked up his bag and his bag, it was literally 120 pounds. And I go, Larry, what, what do you have in this? He goes, I got my rollerblades and I got my weights. And I go, you're carrying your weights with you? And he, I go, why don't you just do push-ups and Hindu squats? And he goes, no, you got to have those weights. You got to pump iron every day. <laughs> that was crazy, but that was that was it. And then uh, the night training was either jujitsu or wrestling, or uh, I either would have Rico Chipperelli, or I'd go to the Machados, or I'd go down to Boxing Works, and I'd just roll uh, with Nogi, and it was all ground submission stuff. So I was getting, I was getting wrestling, jujitsu, uh, the catch. Mm-hmm. stuff and then uh the shoot boxing and kickboxing uh mixed and some days we'd box some days it was just straight kickboxing and then some days it was just uh shoot boxing punching kicking and throwing 
but that Very was half nice. the work. Yeah. So that was the, that was the training. We were, I was trying to get three workouts in a day. And then somebody said, you're too big for the, for that many workouts, five days a week. So we're going to tell you you're overtraining. And then there was Mark Kerr and Mark Coleman. I said, well, how are you guys training? And they go, we, we only train three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and that's it. And I go, is that enough? And they go, yeah, because you're big. You, your body needs a break. You need to. So for me, I didn't, there were no rules. So I didn't know how much was too much. So I was running. I was running day and night, morning. I'd wake up, I'd go run on the beach. And then I do my workouts, and at night I do a thirty-minute run or forty-minute run right before dinner at dusk. But man, th- those are the best times of my life when I could do that. Just just remembering being on the beach at that early in the morning, you know, as sun as the sun's coming up, or running at dusk. You know, living down at the beach that was some of my favorite times, definitely. It's so funny how, how we get old so fast. Like, that's, it just seems like yesterday, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, hold on, I'm over 50 now. and I'm watching it going, in my head, I, I think I could, I'm waiting to start doing it again, but I know that I can't do that. Oh, man, you're, you're talking my lingo now because, yeah, I've, I feel it every day. Somebody just the other day asked me how old I am, and I – I mean, I've said it before, but when I said it this time, I said 58, and it clicked. I'm like, in two years, I'm going to be 60 years old. I can't. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks. But I mean, how do you? How do we go from being workout fanatics and kicking everybody's (laughs) ass to being senior citizens? This ain't fair. (laughs) Uh, I think we just you just have to still stay active, and you know, even even if it's coaching. You know, when you're older and you can't get in there and do it as much, it I I, I think that coaching still keeps you young. And yeah. you had a really good protege that uh, took a couple of my seminars in Indiana, uh, Asian guy. Oh, Brian Deneve. Yeah, and I said, hey, Brian, where – I go, where do you wrestle? And he goes, I never wrestled. And I go, well, hold on a second. You, uh, you're hitting sit-outs and barrel rolls. <laughs> I go, where did you learn that? And he goes, Tony. And I went, wait a second. He teaches you how to wrestle, uh, ground wrestle, uh, on top of the catch wrestle and the submission stuff. And he goes, yeah. And I go, holy crap. I, I thought for sure he's a wrestler. Yeah. So yeah, Brian, great. Yeah, Brian, unfortunately, couldn't be on the podcast tonight. But, yeah, he spoke highly of you, too. And, you know, that's what's nice. I've never met anybody that said anything bad. And, and I never got to, when well, we talked on the phone years ago, but we never got to meet. But there yeah. is something, I don't know if you can answer this question. It, it's not important. Nobody else will give a damn. But it's important to me because when I was a kid, um, my only exposure really to martial arts, like, you know, the actual, like, we're martial artists, but back then boxers and wrestlers weren't considered martial artists. So my only exposure to the Asian martial arts, let's put it, was magazines now and then i could get a magazine and read well being in cleveland kind of neutral town there was always this big rivalry of new york they're the best in the country california they're the best in the country uh it was and these guys i guess used to hate each other's guts what did, were, did you ever witness any of that kind of rivalry east coast west coast 
Yeah, because of uh, it was a karate though. It, it, because back then it was more yeah. more the karate style, so it was like uh, you'd have you'd have the the guys like uh, I used to go to the um, Diamond Nationals in in Minnesota, and <laughs> and that's where all the top Billy Blanks would come in, uh, Steve Nasty Anderson. All these top guys, Terry Norbloom, John Longstreet, Pat Worley, mm-hmm. uh, all these uh, all these guys that were coming in. Yeah, there was always a rivalry. Demetrius Hanabas. Uh, there's a lot of older uh, Ray McCallum. He was from Texas. These guys were all like point karate, turn full contact fighters. And yeah, I guess it was... It's. I guess it was like the rap world, you know. It's like West Coast versus East Coast. <laughs> it, it kind of was that. You're right. And uh, so you look at all these karate guys. They got heavily into boxing uh, because full contact became super popular. And all you had to have is eight kicks per round above the waist. And then after you got your eight kicks, and it turned into a boxing match. So you had to have good boxing and and just you know eight kicks around. So that that was an interesting time to see that change, and then it was uh, Duke, uh, Duke, Duke, uh, Rufus, Rick Rufus, and Duke. Uh, they were actually uh, starting to cross fight the ties, and that's why Duke started actually uh, incorporating a lot of the tie boxing into his training because his brother used to challenge those guys and they're like, Hey, what is this style with this? These guys are just kicking so hard. And, and that's when like Benny, the jet was going over to Japan to fight and he was fighting alongside with Tadashi Yamashita was bringing guys and, and they had a lot of fighters going over there and, and they were challenging their American style kickboxing, which was predominant hands with good jump back kicks and good round kick hook kicks with the, uh, with the boxing versus the Japanese Thai boxing style, more Japanese style back then. Uh, it was mostly because Japan was a huge market for uh, same with pride, but uh, they'd love to have the foreigners come in and challenge them. Very nice. Big. I, I, a- I wasn't really involved in the karate world, but I do remember is it, I was real young. I'm talking like maybe 10, 11 or something. And Cleveland had a guy who was, uh, I supposedly, I don't mean it like he's lying, but his, well, he was the first, I think, karate world champion, American guy, from, and he was from Cleveland. His name was Algene Carulia, and he lived on the west side. I lived on the east side. I was a kid. I met him once just not even knowing, you know, who he was until like weeks later when I read about him in a magazine. I'm like, Jesus, oh. I met this guy. Um, yeah. Was so Manson, remember Manson Gibson, wasn't he from that area or somewhere around there? You know, that name rings a bell. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying he was, or was it the name rings a bell. I'm not sure. Uh, Manson Gibson used to run backwards. He would run seven miles backwards. <laughs> He had the weirdest style of, of uh, karate and kickboxing. He would knock everyone out, but he, 
I go, well, what, what makes him so different? He goes, well, you know how you do your runs forward? He does them backwards. Huh. Man, <laughs> interesting times. But, right? Yeah, but Tony, you uh, – so, Luthez, so you ended up – you started under – A guy named Stanley Rodvon, which when I was a kid, yeah. he taught me basically everything that I, 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 I know, all the rips and the hooks and uh, – Wow. Self-defense aspect. Well, Eric, you know, this is 1977 when I started. So wow. there was no sport uh, like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was definitely. judo or sambo. I never, we never heard of it. Saw it. I mean, I mean, yeah. we heard of judo, but yeah. And then years go by, I met Lou and Lou was like, Oh my God, you're doing what I did. I didn't know anybody did what I did. And That's we cool. clicked. Yeah. Yeah. We clicked. And you know what we used to do a lot? Cause he was already, basically 80 oh, Lou was and we would just do about he would ask me questions on how would I set up this move and I tell him and I go how do you set up you know such and such a move and we would exchange things like that because by that time we we knew all the submissions there's you're not going to surprise anybody with something new um yeah. it's your setups and your and your thing and then he would take me on a time machine he'd he'd say let me show you how Ed Strangler Lewis did this. Oh, Let me cool. show you. Yeah, right. Wow, what a like, historical! What a that's unbelievable. It, it, he again, he was the most approachable guy. He didn't have time for a lot of BS. Yeah, he didn't seem like that. He wasn't like that, um, and he was tough as nails to the very end. Uh, believe me, him and I almost got into a couple rumbles together when I went and saw him in Orlando. It was just with his wife there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. He was tenacious, uh, but he was a gentleman. Now here's the thing about Lou compared now my first instructor, Stanley Rodvon was so, so strong, just amazingly destroyed. He's still the toughest man I've ever seen or heard of in my life. Wow. But Lou was more like built like me. We were the same height. We were the same weight. Uh, so he moved, we would move similar. Okay. Uh, well, not when he was 80, but you know what I'm saying in his prime. So we had a lot of similarities. Our styles were very similar. So uh, we, we, we click like that. Uh, I miss him. You know, it's, it's like 20 years basically since he passed away. Uh, and it's How old was like you when you were training with him? Well, let's do the math. I met him in 1997, no, 98. I think I met Lou in 98. So I knew him for the last five years of his life, basically. Uh, and I was with my first coach for five years. Uh, so, yeah. But Lou, you know, here's the difference. When I was studying with Stanley Ravon, I was a young boy, and I became a young man with him. When I was with Lou, I was already a grown man. So you approach things differently. You can ask questions that you don't as a kid. You don't think to. Kids are seen and not heard kind of deal. So I was – but blending these two guys together was I, – I just I just hit the jackpot. Kind of like you being – you know, uh, uh, being able to train with Yuri Nakamura and then you yeah. have the, the Machados or whomever else. Yeah, the Machados, Dan and Asano. Yeah, it was very yeah. – and, and that was one reason why I tried to come get from Minnesota to California because I knew 
that there were so many superstar athlete uh, martial artists out here, like Sexon for Muay Thai. Uh, Rob Kamen came out, and I used to spar with him. He became my sparring partner. Lucia Riker was out here. They were all searching their careers. And then uh, and then for uh, wrestling, I got to meet up with Rico Ciparelli, and he said, hey, I want you to come down and, and try to catch these guys. And I said, who are these guys? And he goes, don't worry about who they are. Just try to catch them. So I got to roll with the, uh, these these three wrestlers, and I didn't know who they were. And I go, who are these guys? He goes, that's Randy Couture. This is Dan Henderson. And then there was another guy. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Dennis Hall. He was from Iowa. And yeah. uh, gold medalist. And these guys were all like, highly accoladed wrestlers, but Rico wanted to see how they would fare against a guy that was trying to submit them. And I didn't know that Rico was trying to play that off to see where I was and where they were. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just trying to get into an area and get around the right people. You just kind of are fortunate to meet the right people at the right time. And everyone kind of falls into place like that. I mean, for you to get uh catch wrestling like that, especially as like your first art. That's amazing. Yeah. And the guy went to my church. I mean, that's how wow. we met. He, he was much older. He was a world war two, um, uh, concentration camp survivor. He's from Poland wow. originally. Yeah. So he was actually older than my grandparents. He was 70 years old, basically when I started with him, uh, Dang. like 69. Yeah. But it didn't matter. I mean, he was, he was, he was still doing strongman shows and bending oh, coins. So, that but part I, was part of it. Well, here's something that I want to say, because since you're on the show, uh, and I may have mentioned this, but a lot of people look at like me or maybe you even too, you know, I don't know what your life experience is, but they'll be like, oh, catch wrestling. It's just for big, strong guys. It's not true. When I, when I started with him, um, with my stuff, I was what? What did I? What, what did that book say, Joe? That I wrote my my notes. One hundred and ten pounds. Yeah, I was like uh, about fifteen or something. You're one hundred and ten pounds. When I started learning, and then when I finally um, stopped five years later, was when I was graduating from high school, I weighed one hundred and seventy eight pounds. So wow. I was never as muscular uh, as I became. So I learned all my stuff. So I tell this to like people who are smaller or women, you know, yeah, there is a size, size matters to a degree, but this isn't for like big, strong guys. Most of the greatest wrestlers were, you know, smaller weight guys. So. And in shape though. Oh, like of course. You got to be strong. Burns. Yeah. Look at Farmer yeah. Burns. Absolutely. He wasn't big. Uh, you know, John Pesek wasn't big. All these great legends, uh, Ray Steele, but yeah, you have to be in shape no matter what you no matter what you are or how much you weigh, uh, yeah, fitness was always important. And being raised by a strong man like him, learning all the different exercises for my hands and the arms and everything, the the, ex the <clears throat> free weight exercises, so I didn't have ex access to weights at that point, um, really made a difference. But, um, yeah, there's Did a lot of – see, I didn't know this about you. There's a lot of similarities between us that I, I wasn't aware of. Yeah, gymnastics for me was – uh, very similar body weight exercises, pull-ups and dips and Hindu squats. And we used to do jackknife, jackknives for your stomach and crunches. Uh, every, every workout in gymnastics, we had to do 200 push-ups, 
200 pull-ups and 200 dips every, every training session. And that was during high school. That's a, that's a ton of stuff, but, um, the body weight exercises, but you, you got to learn the old school stuff, uh, the old school exercises. And yeah, with, and with also with the European slant and, and the cool thing about Radvan, uh, he traveled the whole world. Well, I shouldn't say the whole world, but he traveled a large portion of the world uh, wrestling. This is before World War II, wrestling and doing his uh, his uh, strongman shows. So like Lou Fez, who was a bit younger, Lou traveled the world and, you know, wrestling and got to see um, how athletes do things from different parts of the world. And one of the things Lou used to tell me is, We'd watch a wrestler, let's say in India, for example. He's wrestling in India. He'll see a guy do some moves, and Lou would be like, you know what? There's potential there. We can work this. When, when I get back home to America, I'm going to work this into something, um, meaning turning it into a more combat-oriented uh, uh, t- tactic. Um, so, yeah, those guys, Radvan, Luthez, they came from an era that really doesn't exist now, and they were luckily able to turn pick up so much just from being Uh, all over you know one thing when i was in japan um so i got to go i was training josh for pride and on a friday night him and matt hume decided to go to dinner and so i had the night off the night before his fight so i jumped on a train and i i uh went to the snake pit and i got to see billy robinson and this is uh probably about six months before he passed but um, I went there and I said, hey, uh, I'm here to train with you, sir. Can I, can I jump on the mat and take your class? And he just looks at me and he goes, no. He goes, roll with him. And he points to his top guy. And I said, but I just want to learn technique and, uh, you know, <clears throat> the catch wrestling from you. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, just roll with my guy. I want to watch you. And. And it was funny because he was teaching. He wasn't watching us, but he was watching us out of the corner of his eye. Okay. But it was he made me go with his guy, and I just wanted to learn from him. But Matt Hume told told him when I first went to the snake pit, they said, who are those guys? He goes, well, that's Josh Barnett, and that's his coach. Eric Paul, he goes, that's his coach? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, huh. And it was after that, he didn't want to share anything with me. Didn't He was kind of – you know, hands back, uh, like he wanted to see, you know, why, because he knew Josh was a catch wrestler, catch style wrestler. And he said, yeah. well, okay, well, I want to see this guy that supposedly is coach, what he knows or what he can do. So I had to roll with this guy and he was small. He was a, he runs a snake pit. He's the head coach there. And uh, I, 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 we went, we he goes, start, I go up or down. He goes, start down. I go, okay. Like where on our knees. And he goes, yeah, just start on your knees. And I go, you sure you don't want to start on your feet. He goes, no, there's not enough room and there's class going on. You're going to land on people Just start down. So we started down and it was 10 minutes back and forth. I couldn't take him down. He couldn't take me down. We we're going back and forth. And I'm like, well, screw that. We got like, you know, another 10 minutes left. So I pulled guard and I swept him. And then I went on. I went on top. And I, listen, I didn't want to pull guards. I'm in a catch wrestling school. You know, that's all I needed to get booed off the floor. You know, boo 
you're one of those guys. And I, but I only did it because we couldn't take each other down. So, uh, but it was nice that I got to go there and, and listen to Billy talk. And I asked him if I could take him out for some dinner. And he said, no, I have a cup. I probably have a can of soup in my cupboard somewhere. And I said, are you sure you wouldn't let me just take you to dinner? Uh, let me take you to some a good meal or something. And he said, no. And I go, well, how about a beer? And he goes, now you're talking. <laughs> so right. that was the best thing. We went and had ramen and we had a couple beers and he opened up talking about the history of catch wrestling and everything. And I asked him and I said, Hey, uh, so he told me about the history of, of uh, the snake pit in England in Wigan and how it was open 24 hours a day. And people were coming in off the trains all the time from all different wrestling and judo jiu-jitsu guys and uh japanese jiu-jitsu guys back then and then i said how come uh why do you think catch wrestling's really lost why why do you what what's going on there how come what happened to all the the catch wrestlers of your time and he said well he said a lot of them died a lot of them have died off then there are some that were really good, but they didn't want to teach anybody. So they're super secretive with their information. So it started, started dying with dying off with these people because they weren't sharing their info. Yeah. And then the third thing was they were getting sick. They get it like a toothache and there was no cure back then for a toothache, except for tooth extraction or impetigo or conjunctivitis, pink eye, they'd go blind in their eye because they didn't have anything to treat their pink eye. And he said a lot of the old catch wrestlers uh, because of hard times and because of uh, ailments and lack of money, poverty, they, they committed suicide. What a tragedy. And, and he's right, especially about the eyes because Ed Strangler Lewis went blind from that, you know, oh, he did. He wow. cures. yeah. Uh, and on that same note, like when I would talk with, uh, Luthez about I would name some now so Billy Robinson was was the you know he knew the English stuff so I was raised more with the American stuff and when I would talk to Lou and I would drop certain names Lou would get like really angry you know and oh yeah he's like you know that guy's an asshole this and that but as it the more I would prompt him and we we talk openly Lou had problems with a couple of them but business-wise, okay, oh. because these guys became promoters. And um, one in particular, John Pesic, the other Toots Mont, okay, those two. And Lou had issues with them from a business standpoint. But when when I'd say, forget about all that, just, just forget it. Forget all the business. You know, let's talk about them, you know, rolling around. And he, and he would begrudgingly admit they, these guys were, you know, fantastic. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so so there's always that, you know, how, did they get screwed somehow? Uh, did they get double crossed? You know, yeah. um, so there's there's a lot of that stuff. Yeah, uh, because of the business, uh, because that that was their job, and they're carnival wrestlers originally, yeah. and then then in the 30s when it became popular and it became entertainment, it became having your own shtick, your own move, having your or your own gimmick. Mm -hmm. uh, also. Uh, the acting and acrobatics came about. So people were looking at more as a business than, than like in the old days, it was just grapple anyone that challenges you. Well, that's very true. And in part of the, the, the pro wrestling, the, 
the work matches is it really um, set a lot of, not a lot of guys knew all the hooks, but even the ones that did, it set them back a lot because they had to change the way they trained. They had to change the way they, they did more of a performance art style of wrestling. Sort of like, let's, let's imagine Jackie Chan, you know, doing his Kung Fu in the movies. He wouldn't fight like that if he had to, but a lot of these guys, they ended up the new crop that would come in. They had to learn all the theatrical ways to escape the flamboyance. And at least here in America, I can't speak for England, but here, that's how a lot of the real shit got lost because it wasn't needed. Everybody was cooperating and the style, their training was no longer, it was authentic, but it wasn't like to, to beat an opponent. It was to put your opponent over or make it, make it a good performance. You know what I'm talking about. Wow. But, but, you know, I wish you could have met Lou. I wish you could have met, met uh, Stanley Rodvon. Uh, he was a very difficult man, very difficult in, in that he had a rough life, you know, being in a concentration camp. Wow. He wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. They pretty much, they, there's a lot of info about what he went through. Some of it is exaggerated, but a lot of it is right on. Uh, but he was rough and it was at a rough time in America in the seventies. We were in a high crime area and Rod Vaughn used to tell me, I want the worst beatings you ever get to happen here, not on the street. So yeah, Joe knows that if I trained people like he trained me, I would be, I would have one session and then I would have been let out of there in handcuffs. Okay. (laughs) They would have, they'd have called the cops on me. It was tough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was a different time. Oh yeah. 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 You know, my grandparents that raised me were like, you know, you shut up. You know, you just listen, you know, you know, you do what he, what he says, but, but Lou was more like a grandfather at that point, grandfatherly to me. Uh, and his wife, Charlie was just a wonderful Southern lady. Uh, and Lou and I would talk about not so, I mean, he would tell stories about the business. Not that I was interested because I wasn't a professional wrestler, like, but he would tell me his street encounters and just, funny anecdotes and he would like like my previous coach he'd lay the law down on who was a real shooter and who was uh, like a you know fake shooter i don't want to drop names now yeah but he yeah, kind of sure. said yeah because he came from a different he came from like the next generation like he was about 10 years younger than stanley Rodman. so they kind of ran into different circles but was um he, was he like the same age as gene labelle and uh uh, Carl Gotch and uh... yeah, Lou. Yeah, he was a little older than Carl. I don't. He's probably older than Gene because Gene. I've talked to Gene on the phone a few, like two or three times years ago. He loved Luthez. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and when now. yeah, and Lou yeah, Lou would mention that he'd see Gene when Lou would be wrestling in L.A. at the Coliseum or whatever. Uh, it may not have been the Coliseum, but whatever his mother. Gene LaBelle's mother owned the auditorium. Yeah, um, LA Auditorium, I think. Yeah, that's it. And in, and Gene would be there watching the guys working out. And, uh, and you know, yeah, Gene could not stop uh, talking about Lou in a great way. Um, so, yeah, Lou was just uh, – he was the grand – he was like the last of the Mohicans as far as that era here in America. And 
I don't know if he ever wrestled Billy Robinson. I don't think so because there was too big of an age gap and they were in different organizations. But he wrestled Carl Gotch and um, Danny Hodge and wow. Vern Gagne. You know, yeah. he, he wrestled all those guys. Yeah. Uh, boy, just I miss him. You know, he was just a great, great guy. Are you are you still teaching or coaching or teaching? Uh... I, I try, yeah, when I can. I was out, I've been out of the loop for many years because I, I had to take care of my mom who had dementia and Alzheimer's, and I hated it. I mean, I finally had to put her in a nursing home just a few months ago oh, in May. Yeah, it, it was rough because I'm an only child. She's an only child, so oh. I didn't have help. Yeah. Um, but I, I try to do like one seminar or two a month now. We just started this again. So it's a small group. Uh, hopefully it'll expand. Our problem is we don't know marketing. We don't, people probably don't even watch podcasts. I don't know. But, but you know, you got the young, all you got to do is get a young guy to do your marketing, get you on Instagram. And once you get that and possibly a YouTube channel and let them do all the, the stuff for you. Yeah. We probably need to look into that because our YouTube channel's got a few followers. Uh, I don't, I've never been on Instagram. But I don't want to talk about me because let's talk about you because you're very interesting. No. Um, no, it's important know, that people know because I, didn't you just do a self-defense, uh, catch wrestling for self-defense series with BJJ Fanatics? Yeah, about a year ago. we just That was like was supposed to be the first of a continuing series. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we're going to do any more. Uh, I haven't been in contact with them. Uh, that was tough because – I they, they wanted me to fly out to Boston. Well, I couldn't because I had to watch my mom. So they flew out here to Chicago, yeah. and I got somebody to watch my mom for the day so I could film. Um, great guy that came out to film. Nice, uh, you know, and all of that. Um, but, yeah, that's – I would love to have done more. Sure, you we'll, should do some more with them. We'll see. We'll see if, if they're interested, you know. Have our but, number. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, we'll talk to Mike Zenga. Ask Mike if he's because cat dressing okay. is a hot hot subject right now because there's so many black belts in jujitsu. They're all borrowing from cat dressing oh, and not giving any homage or hashtags to it. You know that irks me. You know because of the lack of respect that always bothered me. Uh, and even when I did one of my ser- like I did the lost art of hooking thing, and I would try to say, okay, I I learned this from Lou. Or I learned this from Stanley, or I learned this from from Doug Bluebot. Yeah, it's all about homage. And you know what? When I say I learned it from Lou, well, that's as far as I can say. Now, Lou would say, oh, I learned it from such and such. There's a lineage. There's a chain. Yeah, there has Uh, to be that. It's 2,000 years old. You know, wrestling. Guys are stealing it today, though. A lot of of them are just going, hey, that's cool. I'm going to... I'm going to film myself doing that. And that's new jujitsu. It's new because you're a jujitsu guy and you just added it to your style. That's, that's how that works. Try pulling it off on somebody who knows how to wrestle like that. You know, that's the other thing. People don't want to, um, I have, like you brought up about Brian at at your seminar, you learn how to do all those rolls and those sit outs and those hip heists. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to practice that because they want to learn the killing moves. Well, you're never going to pull a kill move. If you don't know how to control, how to move, how to how to wrestle from hold to hold, that's um, right. It's the boring stuff. You know that. That's you right. just told us Transition. five teachers, huh? 
the transitions, it's the transitions, yeah. the escapes, the reversals, the stuff that people don't want to work is the most important aspect of the game. And then, and then they all want to learn the submissions. You, you can see the glum face. Everyone's like ho-hum and sad because they have to learn reversals and switches and rides. And then all of a sudden you show one submission and they just light up and their eyes are, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You, you need the final product. You know, in the old days, they called it a punishment hold. It wasn't even called a submission. Right. And it was a punishment hold just to tweak somebody if they were stalling so they could make a move so they could pin them. Most of the matches were won by pins. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't know that. So they would turn out or whatever just to get pinned to let it go. Um, and then we used to call – I was taught some moves that were called stretch, stretches. We're gonna, I'm going to stretch this guy. Uh, which again was, was a punishment. And then when you add the rips and this and that, all the gouges and, uh, which are not allowed anywhere, uh, you know, that, and that changes everything. But, uh, you know, what, what I, what I don't understand, and this really gets me is because America, United States of America has such a great history of catch wrestling, all the great champions, Farmer Burns, Frank Gotch, Joe Stecker, on and on, Earl Caddick. And yet, and I'm t- trying to keep it alive, but people are like, oh, no, I want to learn, you know, from this country or that country. It's like, it gets frustrating. Yeah, you know, people need to just take a history lesson. Uh, I think there needs to be more historical videos up and books out. You should see, you go on Amazon, there's a lot of catch wrestling books now. I was mm-hmm. so surprised. I, I was I was taken off. I, I couldn't believe it. Have you have you talked uh, to uh, Jeff Curran out of uh, Iowa? Oh, is oh, I thought he was out here somewhere. No, I, oh, I, not Jeff. I'm sorry, not Jeff Curran. Uh, Curran Jacobs. No, I don't know him. Uh-uh. Curran. Uh, oh, he's in Michigan, I think. Right, or at least he was. Oh yeah, Michigan. He's in Michigan, not Iowa. Yeah. But yeah, he's won some championships. Yeah, he was kind of a. I don't. I haven't seen stuff on him lately. But yeah, he was for. The well, last he did. Year, a, it's a big he game. just did a TV sh- or a video, not a, a documentary called "The Love of Catch," and it was kind of historical, on the historical aspect. I, I was surprised it, he didn't interview you for that, uh, Tony. No, nobody reaches oh. out to me. I'm like the black. I don't know why. Uh, I don't. Well, maybe they couldn't get in touch with you. I don't know. Another interesting thing, though, kind of because you bring up uh, Curran Jacob, is he definitely seems to be what I would consider, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of what I'd call almost a traditionalist or a purist with it when I've seen him online. Like, you know, he wants to do it as the way the sport was done back in the day. And that's cool. I mean, if you want to resurrect that and like, you know, so basically the pinning, you win by pins. And there's a trade off when you do that. And there's, there's there's a big debate, you know, and it's kind of interesting in a way because you know, that's not what Tony's, when he was taught by Rod Vaughn, it was to defend himself on the street. And so the sportive sportive stuff was gone. So there was no pinning per se. You learned the wrestling moves, but you were, it was closer to jujitsu in a sense that you won by, you took this guy out, you you broke something on him or choked him out. And so like, I remember reading, and I can't even remember who it was, some catch guys were they actually took jiu-jitsu classes because they said they didn't know finishes from the head and arm position, which shocked me when they said that because they said, well, when you get head and arm, you're pinning the guy, the match is over, and we don't train anything from there. And I was like, I, I couldn't believe that because that's our bread and butter 
hold down. You fight right. out of the head and arm. You can submit the guy there. You don't have to go to other styles to learn these things. Um, so it's interesting. So I, I guess the saying in some ways is Tony's, and one of the things we struggle with is that we're not in a sense traditionalists with catch. You know, we're taking the old, you know, we're doing what a catch wrestler would do in a self-defense situation, you know? And so in some ways, like we've clicked with Krav Maga guys because they just want to learn how to defend themselves. You know, yeah. they're not going to compete because when we train with jujitsu guys, quite often it's like, can you please yeah. change this hold? So or can I do JJ? yeah, I, I can't put my foot here. I can't do this. Yeah, and so it's like they ask, a, you know, and, um, and wide. so that's, it's a weird niche we're in where we don't, we, we're illegal. There's illegal stuff in jujitsu or MMA. Uh, there's stuff that the, the purists don't want to know, you know, cause they want to, a lot of these guys are high level wrestlers and they're looking to compete. And it's like, well, some of these things either a are too brutal or like i said they they take the pinning out which is not comfortable for them you know so it is weird so it's 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 kind of it's kind of put him in this, this narrow market and finding people who you know like because i come as i was not a wrestler to begin with i wanted to learn how to defend myself and and what he was saying was clicking with me a lot more than some other styles that i'd come i mean you, everybody needs grappling for their self-defense but it's like oh this is how i make it horrible you know like this is how i really you know this is when it, when you start to see this is how bad it can get you know because when you're grappling your body's very vulnerable and you know you give up a slight bit of advantage the hands can get to to parts of the body that are and that's what he was taught and so uh, it's it's so i guess the answer to your question is it's he we fall between the cracks a lot you know it was like who who's the market for if you know it doesn't work in IBJJ. Who, or it doesn't work in traditional catch, you know. And so that's some of the things that we're swimming up uh, against the current on. No pun intended. Uh, well, one of my, one of the guys I've trained for a long time, Javier Palomo. He's won several world cha championships in jujitsu and submission grappling events. So he's made the crossover. Um, he's not a striker or anything, but uh, but in in order for him to be popular with the with the crowd, the click, it's jujitsu guys. Um, so that's that's fine. You know, there's nothing we're gonna do, nothing not, that I can do about it. I mean, I've been thumping at it on the on the internet since the '90s. It's never yeah. gonna change. That's but right. I, I could I could tell you, I respect people like yourself, uh, Josh Barnett and stuff. Uh, you to me, and I've said this before on these podcasts, you guys are the real deal. When people ask me to, um not recommend what's the word uh joe uh endorse or who yeah i'm hard i'm a hard sell man i'm like a guy that says most guys aren't very good or they lack this or that there's a few guys that i think are excellent at what they do and and you're at the top of the list i mean you know you're phenomenal from what i've seen you know i i hope i get to meet you in person one of these days and uh yeah for, we need uh, to meet sometime yeah but uh -huh. we're not going for ramen we're gonna if you're in chicago we're going for pizza you know, we can have pizza and beer, not ramen, you know. Yeah. Well, I was just having ramen because we were in Japan. But, I know it. I know it. <laughs> but, yeah, that, I love it. It's an Italian restaurant. What's the one with the with the meat sandwiches? Uh, it's real famous right there. We're talking Italian beefs, like Portillo's, the chain. Yes. Everybody loves Portillo's, yeah. Portillo's. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah that... well, I, I just love, you know, you you had a different take on it because you were really uh, uh, exposed, I guess, and and interested in in movie arts and and martial arts, and I never really was because the the negative about 
my one of the things was um, always being beat down, not physically, but verbally about you're not a martial artist, you're a boxer, you're a wrestler, you're not a martial artist, you're not a martial artist, you're not a martial artist. So no, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm not a martial artist. Well, so, boxing and wrestling are America's oldest martial arts. I know that, right? You know it. They just didn't want to hear it. Even though while I'm beating them up, they, they couldn't understand this. So uh, so I never really got that desire to move to California. Uh, I, I just, to me, California seemed like on the other side of the world, really. Yeah. And I kind of regret it now because you could I have had a lot a of in- Huh? Could have been in a lot of movies. Yeah, oh, no, no, yeah, no, not movies. I don't, but I would love to have been around it with you guys and um, exchanging ideas and learning different things, and that would have been so great. Uh, but you know, because California was was a big influence growing up because most of the television shows we'd watch were like filmed in California, and you kind of get a sense of it. And oh. I was in the inner city ghetto of Cleveland. I couldn't like. I couldn't grasp the Brady Bunch. I had no connection to that. All right. So yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness. But I, I, I've been to California several times to do seminars. Uh, none recently, but the last few that I did were in LA uh, at a pro wrestling. One of my students at the time owned a pro wrestling gym, but he wanted me to teach his guys, um, you know, how to really hook and defend yeah. themselves. Uh, against because they were doing this like an extreme form of wrestling where literally the fans would attack you for real. So they wanted, you know, he wanted, they wanted his, his guys to be tough guys. Wow. And then, you know, th- yeah, but then things happen, you know, life gets in the way and then the pandemic hit and oh. it, um, yeah, the prices exploded. My, my student lived, lived in San Diego. He now lives in um over the border in Mexico where it's much cheaper and he doesn't have the gym. So uh, things just seem to happen, but I I have fond memories of LA, uh, even Northern California. Um, I remember many years ago, I did a seminar in Beverly Hills and I trained Daryl Goler, who was in one of the UFCs. I know Daryl. Oh man. How's he doing? That was was Greg Nelson's coach. He, he, you know, uh, so I worked with Daryl on uh, um, the TV show. Um, what was it oh, called? The gladiator thing? It wasn't. It was like it was Battle Dome. It's called Battle Dome. Oh. And he was a wrestler, and I had to tell him to take it easy. I go, please don't hurt any of the contestants. <laughs> wrestle, but he was uh, J- Greg Nelson's Greco coach in Minnesota, and then Daryl Golar went over to Brazil and was training the American or Brazilian top team, Mario Sperry, Bustamani, okay. Vitor Belford, and all those guys. That's what he was doing. I don't know if he's still over there or not, but I know he was loving the lifestyle there for a while. Is Yuri Nakamura still coaching? He's back in Japan. He went home, and uh, he had a – he almost died. Ooh. He had a heart issue. Uh there was like uh, something, I don't know what it was. He wasn't eating any carbs, and something happened and it affected his heart. And he had open heart surgery. Oh no! And uh, they just said, "Hey, you can't get back on an airplane, come back across because the air pressure would be too hard on your heart." So he hasn't been back since. 
uh, they cut him open and down to his navel and then Jeez. sealed him up. And the next day he was walking around. He, he, they were just like, hey, you're not even supposed to be out of bed, let alone awake. How are you walking around? And he's See, like, I he's feel fine. Knowledge to share, man. It's a sh- I hope he lives a long life. He's got. He's another guy with, with a lot of knowledge. Oh, I never yeah. got to meet any of you guys, you know? Yeah. Not a wrestler, but did you ever meet Fumio Demura? Yes, old- yeah, I did. Uh, he was working on a couple movies down here. He was with Carrie Ogawa and James Liu. And uh, James Liu was working on a movie down. They're shooting down at the beach, and I went down on the set. I wasn't hustling. I was just down to, to see because he said that there were some good fight scenes. And Kerry Ogawa had to fight Fumio Demora, and uh, it was pretty amazing just to watch these guys moving around like that uh, on the movie set. You know, it's kind of cool. See, I've never even been on a movie set, man. I, I mean, I've talked uh, to actors and yeah. I've bodyguarded some people, but I've missed out on that. You know, yeah, um, you're not you're not missing that. There's a lot of sitting around and waiting. Oh yeah. But, you know, there's definitely like. Uh, most of the time you're talking to your friends, you know, and then you get called and they go, okay, look, but you got to do a lot of rehearsal because when you're doing fight scenes, you got to, you got to rehearse it so many times. And it's not, it's, these guys are all in shape. So they have, they're required to train, you know, five days a week, just like a fighter. Cause when they go on set, they go, all right, here's what you got to do. And these guys are working all the time. So they, they've got to be able to flip and trick and drive and burn and fall, you know, and then when you're older, uh, you want to start coordinating. So you want to, suddenly you're the stunt choreographer, stunt coordinator. And then eventually you want to be like Chad, Chad's now and and Dave Leach and Damon. Those are my three friends that I grew up with uh, training. They're all directors. They're doing second unit, first unit and the movie, John Wick, that's Chad Stahelski. That was my training partner. Chad and I fought bought and shoot out together and now he's him and dave leach are are the directors for john wick now they're on john wick four huh. what about awesome how long were you with gene labelle uh so i was able to to see gene he used to be at all my fights and he kept saying you owe me three hours because uh <laughs> i i i fought paul jones and i got a cross face on him and i he said i, I can't believe you didn't rip his face off he goes, I need to get with you for three hours and show you how to correctly rip someone's face off. And I, it's funny because, you know, Gene just passed away. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Gene just passed away right before Antonio Inoki. So Gene passed away a month ago and Antonio Inoki passed away. Holy shit. I did not know this. Oh, no, 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 no. You're yeah, sure? So I, was, I mean, I can't, I, I can't believe this. Yeah, I went to I went to his wake. Uh, oh my god! To honor him, and it was weird because Antonio Inoki died not so much after him. So, I didn't know Inoki died. Yeah, so, so that's why that's why it's important that you continue to. Hey, it's left into our hands to continue the legacy. If you don't teach it and pass it on to others. And make it public, then it's going to die out. Well, and it was passed on to you for a reason to pass it on to others and keep it alive. 
and you know, you you don't you find you know the you know uh, the Malenko brothers that uh, they learn from Carl Gotch, but I don't think they're out teaching seminars. They're pro wrestlers, and you know yeah. I, I I think that it needs to you know stay out there, and the only way it's going to stay alive is the people that were taught by them, the ones that have passed, paying homage to all these guys that have passed. Well, I'm just in a state. My mind's I'm yeah, shot now when you're telling me about Gene LaBelle. You didn't know. You know he no. You know he invited me to come up to. I guess he has some or had some cabin in the woods or something like that where all the guys would get together and work out. Up in Big and, Bear. Yeah, yeah. He said, "Come on out. We'll all go up there. We work out all day long." Da 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 da. You know, I just never was able to get out there. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, life I, I just goes fast. Life is short and it goes fast. So when you get an opportunity, but here's the thing, you know, it's a big deal that you had to look after your mother. That's extremely important. And it's honorable that you did that, that you, that you didn't, uh, you know, a lot of people easily would have, Oh, this is too hard. I've got to put my mom in a nursing home instead of, you know, stepping up to the plate and taking care of her. That that's extremely important and that's honorable. And, and, uh, that's a, a big deal. That's a big deal. And the fact that you missed out on some stuff, that's okay. Cause there's still time for you to do a lot of stuff and you should continue with BJJ fanatics. I'll hit Mike up and tell him that, uh, uh, that he should have you do some more cat dressing stuff. Definitely. Well, that's awful nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. I, I appreciate it. You know, well, the mom yeah. thing was like 10 years and of it in, uh, just it finally got to just too dangerous for both of us because she would have the gas oven, the burners, and uh, wa- walking around. You know, it, it, she freaked. You know, what's well dementia and Alzheimer's. She has no idea who I am. She wow, doesn't. You know, she still thinks her parents are alive. But no, this thing about Gene. You know, I've I've seen his books. He used to send me. Matter of fact, he used to. I used to be on his Christmas list, Christmas card thing, before I moved, and he used to send me patches. patches. Yeah, right. I showed Joe some of those patches and his book, his uh, grappling book, uh, big thick thing, you know, uh, and I just always wish I could have, he was another one of the guys I wish I could have met. I'm lucky I met Larry. I'll never probably get a chance to to meet Yuri because, you know, I won't be going over to Japan, but I would love to meet you and Josh person. Um, You know, I start, go ahead. uh, Hold on. I was going to say something. Um, I forget. I'm sorry. Well, it's all right. With me, I just hate starting to name names, and then I forget somebody, and then they're like, well, what about me? You know, I'm very forgetful, but all you guys have been uh, very proactive with with not just catch in general, but you, you guys have been gentlemen and ambassadors to the sport of 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 MM mixed martial arts or, or and everything else. And I know that um, Marcus Charles, who I have not talked to or seen in a, 10 years or more, he thinks you walk on water, you know, you're uh-huh. just a great guy. No, he does. And he thinks you're just, just a, a great guy. Oh. Um, and that speaks volumes, man. Uh, these he was people under, don't... he was, uh, sorry, he was under Larry. And uh, I promised Larry I'd look after him when Larry passed. Uh, well, I'm glad you did. Yeah, uh, 
But uh, Gene LaBelle, I, I called him because Bobby Bass, the jiu-jitsu guy, he was a wrestler also. Bobby Bass was the first black belt of the Machados, and Bobby's a friend of mine, and he we were talking because Gene, they owned a cabin next to each other, and he goes, I heard Gene died, and he said that six months ago. So I called up Gene, and I said, hey, he goes, I'm still alive, Eric. I just haven't left my house for three years. Oh, and and uh, I said, he goes, you know, I've got all these ranks. I got all these belts and all these ranks from all these people. And he said, the most important thing that I have on my wall is the sadistic bastard uh, certificate I got from Carl Gotch. <laughs> and he goes, Carl Gotch came and watched me in a few of my matches and he shook his head and he said, you're too nice. He said, you, you, need, to, you need to be ripping people's faces off. He said, if, if someone pulls guard on you, you need to break their ankles. And if you don't, you need to burn your shoes. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and it sounds like my coach. <laughs> so, so it was funny, but um, for Gene to say that, because he, he just started reminiscing and talking about Carl Gotch. And I, because I said, because when I train with him, he would say, do you know this? Do you know the short arm scissors? Do you know, do you know this? Do you know the clock head scissors? Do you know the neck screw? Do you know? And I go, yes. And he goes, where did you learn that? And I go, I, I learned it from Sensei Yuri Nakamura, but he was trained by Satoru Sayama, but he was also trained by Carl Gotch. So we're of Gotch lineage. And he goes, well, no wonder it looks the same. There <laughs> you go. He was under Carl Gotch. That, that was why. Interesting. One of the the thing that sticks out with me with Gene, he told me once on the phone, he's like, uh, he goes, my martial arts, I've got this X amount of black belts. I got all these trophies. He says, but the, the house that I live in, the motorcycles that I have, all this other shit, that's because of the movies. Movie. You know, he was right. like, that's where he made his money. He made nothing. He said, in essence, what he was saying is he made nothing in the martial arts. It was all the movies that gave him his, you know, his, his, his money. He told me, there's no residual checks in fighting, Eric. <laughs> there you go. He goes, you want to think about movies, you got to got to get that residual check. That Are was you the, still acting? Uh, I, just did a, I just did a movie called uh, The Trainer. And the guy that hired me, he did American History X with Norton. When Norton yeah. did that curb stomp scene with that guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's the same director. And he goes, I want brutal and nasty fighting. The small guy's got to fight this big guy. I just want brutal, nasty crap. And the big guy's going to beat the little guy up. And he's going to give him 50, 50 blows. And then... And then the little guy, as he's getting knocked out, is going to come back and he's going to just annihilate him. So there's a half, there's a there's a kick, catch, takedown, toe toenail rip. We rip the toenail off the guy. Uh, hit a single leg, uh, ankle pick, hip push, ankle pick, uh, turnover to a STF. He hit a STF, a step over toe hole, face lock and cross-faced the guy so hard and ripped all his teeth out. The guy spit out all his teeth. And it was funny because that he wanted that brutality, and all the stunt guys were looking at me going, 
your fight seems crazy as shit. And I go, that's what he asked for. He, he said, I want funny, but I want brutal. And I go, well, you came to the right guy because I can make anything funny. And he goes, yeah, but we want brutal. We want brutal. And I go, yeah, but it's got to be funny too. So it's coming out pretty soon. It's called The Trainer. I got to see it, man. Yeah. Did it's, you uh, have, it's were funny. you involved with the gangs in New York? No, that was uh, John Peretti. Oh, okay. Yeah, John Peretti did that. Uh, you mean with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis? No, who who was uh, – this is like an old movie now, but uh, what was that guy that did – I thought the guy that did uh, Titanic was in it. Yeah, in Kings of New York, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, what? In Kings of New York, I think it was Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Oh, I don't I remember. Think- who was it, Joe? Well, you're both right. So Leonardo DiCaprio, who was in Titanic, was in Gangs of New York, and so was okay. Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't remember the movie now. It's been too, too Yeah, long. John Peretti was a Gene LaBelle black belt. John Peretti was a matchmaker. He uh, he was a matchmaker for Extreme Fighting when I fought on Extreme Fighting 3 and 4, and then he became the matchmaker for uh, a thing called – or for the UFC, and then I think he was at one called Battlecade. But uh, John Brady was the, he was, he was in the movie, but uh, yeah, I didn't work on that, but that looked like a fun movie to work on. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't remember it now too much, but I used to get a couple emails. People were like, they're, they, it looks like they're doing some of your moves. Do you, did you choreograph the movie? I'm like, man, I've never been at a movie set in my life. John Peretti. <laughs> All right. John Peretti was a catch wrestler under Gene LaBelle. Catch style judo catch uh another person you should probably meet and train with is gokor now gokor gokor was gene labelle's right hand man so he got a lot of the submissions stuff from gene and he was a good sambist and ju- judoka so i've heard gokor. of him you bet gokor is your age he's your yeah. age and he's uh armenian so he had carl parisian manny gamburian Ronda Rousey, they all train with uh, Gene and with Gokor. Yeah, I know that Carol was a very good fighter from what you know when I from yeah. what I saw of him. You know, yeah. uh, very interesting to me. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, you're lucky in a way that that you're out there. Uh, you know, for me, it was kind of a different different world. And yeah, I guess now that I'm getting older, I'm getting like Gene. You're reminiscing. I wish I could have done this. Or well, you know, there's still time for you to do stuff. Yeah, I'll get it together, man. I just got to get, you know, life sometimes has to, you know, gets in the way. And I'm still dealing with the nursing home stuff now. So it'll all, the smoke will clear. Um, But I kind of tried to do the, I loved music too. I was a jazz guy. So I wanted to go in that direction and this and that. Nothing really ever made it the way I thought it would. But were you a guitarist or? No, I was a drummer. I started off as a drummer. And then, believe it or not, I play jazz accordion. Nobody plays jazz accordion. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. So, yeah, That's yeah, right. Cool. But, yeah, I was a drummer, and I, you know, I used to love to play all the kind of music. And, you know, you end up having to play gigs that you don't want to play because you got to make some kind of money. Yeah, you got to make money. You got to make money. You know what it's like. So, That's right. But I, I just wish that uh, we would have met. Well, we still have plenty of time to do that. You're right. Still we got time, yeah. a lot of time. and. Maybe in the spring or summer, I'll head out west. You know, um, 
But now, I'm not real good with the geography. Before we logged on, you said you were in uh, Orange County. It's not L.A. Like, what? how far from L.A. are you? I'm 45 minutes. I'm outside. Oh. Yeah, LA, L.A. to me got a little bit sad because it was it, it reminded me too much of hustling and all my friends working in Hollywood and – Everyone was like, hey, where's so-and-so? Oh, he's working on a movie. And, and so your friends are never around. So you try to hustle and get on the same movies as they. And then it gets to the point where sometimes you're competing with them. And it became kind of a lonely place to live, you know, with so many people there. It just kind of was kind of lonely. And Orange County, for me, uh, saved me from moving out of California because uh, Orange County is so different than L.A. It's, it's so different. The energy here, every every house I lived in in L.A., every apartment I lived in in L.A. was haunted. Every one, every single one of them. I moved out here. I got a house. My house isn't haunted. I'm happy. <laughs> Nothing like living in a haunted apartment. You're yeah. cracking me up, man. Oh, I know. Yeah, And I didn't believe that stuff. I just, I had tons of stuff, you know, I mean. My dog was always scared. Uh, I, I could go on. But anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah, Orange County's clear. So, hey, Halloween's here. Bring it on. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about that. Before it was Halloween in L.A., I get scared because I knew all the shit was going to come <laughs> stirring up. I well, know. you're not planning on leaving then, right? You're going to stay uh, there for a while. Well, yeah, right now, I mean – this, this coming up year is supposed to be a weird year because of the possible food shortage. I know the inflation is big, but when I was in Italy this summer on CNN, they were saying that prepare for the food shortages that are coming in November, uh, starting worldwide in November. And they said that on, on Italian CNN, and uh, I know, don't or what, believe nothing that you hear, half of what you see, and then everything that you feel. But, you know, I'm just wondering what's going to happen. Is Are things going to get pretty bad here, or, or are things going to be okay? Well, I didn't, you know, well, time. I'm an optimist. Right? I'm an optimist. Uh, all I could say is stock up on some food just in case. Yeah. Stock up on some food. That's good advice in general, honestly. I mean, you never know. Even, you know, I was thinking about was Texas a couple of winters ago where they, they got their power wiped out. That's right. I and mean, that wasn't even world events. I mean, right now, world events are very scary, right? We've got war in Europe, uh, all kinds of supply chain things. I mean. Well, a lot very, of people very... think about the nuclear. Uh, I, I think it's all a movie. I think it's a show. I don't think it's really going to be. I don't think that's going to happen. No, even if they don't go nuclear, I mean, they're like the they talk about uh, like Ukraine being the breadbasket to so many, you know, so much of the rest of the world, and they're they're cut down. So, I mean, at a minimum, things are teetering. But I guess my point being is even even if things weren't weren't as <laughs> precarious as they are right now in world events, I mean, because we often talk about like self defense and, and beyond that on this podcast, like we have people from the tracker school who are survivalists. Yeah, I train I train a guy that does that. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. But like, I mean, part of the ethic is like, honestly, be prepared. It's more than just hand to hand fighting, you know, to be safe. Yeah. Well, he went, he went to New Jersey and part of their scenarios were 
they had to prepare each other. They said, okay, let's say so-and-so dies. Now there's no food. We're going to have to eat him. So they had to prepare themselves mentally to eat this guy and how they'd prepare him. And then they're talking about a situation where they're coming across and here's a guy on the side of the road and he's raping a woman. Do you stop to help that woman or do you continue to keep going so you stay safe? And these are all different scenarios that they were talking about. I was, it was weird. I woke up this morning thinking about they were talking about eating each other. And I was, was like, this, oh. was this tracing training he did just recently, by the way? Yes. Or? Yes. Two there, weeks. Oh, because there was something called the escape class. So for I think that was it. Yeah, I totally uh, made a pass on that when I read the description. I was like, I'm not ready for that because they they have. I don't want to digress too much while we have you, but they have the scout level classes. So once you get to okay. the scout level at Tom yes. Brown's, you, it starts to get, you start to get these classes open to you. And so I got the invite and I read the description. It's like, this is, you know, this is going to be run like society is broken down and you're going to be on the run for a week. You're right. Sleeping in the cold. Yes. And it's just getting the little feedback. It's like, Oh, it's even worse than that. That they described. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's, that's cool that he went that, cause that was only, I think it was like open to only 30 people. Uh, the first yeah. 30 people that, that were in and it was going to be run, you know, it was, yeah, that, that, yeah, someday maybe I'll be back for that. Cause I don't, they don't run it every year. That's kind of like oh. a special thing. Yeah. He, he's a tracker, but he, so yesterday we filmed some stuff for YouTube. We just did some, believe it or not, JKD and call. I had a dream. I woke up, they go, what do you want to do? You know, it's huge right now. in self-defense and cat trusting. And I go, yeah, but I had a dream that we needed to do Collie and JKD. And uh, some striking. And the guy's like, ah, well, that's not what we talked about. And I said, but that's what we're going to do. And then right then my friend shows up and he goes, yeah, I got, I went to the escape. What was it called? The escape class? Yeah, it was just the escape scout class. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he was a scout. So Mm -hmm. he he was the, one of the coaches. Oh, wow. Okay. They showed me a picture. They lit up the woods and it was all smoky and the woods were all lit up and it looked scary. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not supposed to talk too much about the scout classes, but when they do it, it's, it's cinematic. Like it's, it's, it's sometimes they turn the woods into kind of like a, a fun house, like a horror house. Uh, yeah. Some of the, some of the events you do. Uh, uh, yeah. Like I said, I only, I've only gone through stage one of that. I survived oh. that somehow, but then, yeah, I was, I, I read the description for that and I was, uh, I was like, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, I still got some skills I need to work on, but that it's cool that I, yeah, it, it sounds amazing. I hope I hope nothing gets to that point, you know, uh, but maybe in our lifetimes it may get to that point, you know, because they said that we've all chose this time of life because of the outstanding things that are coming our way to be a witness to this time that we all chose to be here at this time for these events. And I mean, it's always, you know, hope for the best and work for the best, but you've got to be prepared for that worst case scenario. And it's not fun oh, to think the, about the bug out bag. They're saying it's, it's cool to have a bug out bag, but what if you don't have a, but where are you going to bug out to? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big yeah. One. I, 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 I'm not an expert on this like you guys, but I, I do know that during the pandemic, I've known guys that were, you know, one of these uh, survivalist types, they were freaking out over the pandemic. I'm like, dude, that was nothing. Okay, uh, if you can, if you can't handle the pandemic, you're not going to be able to handle the real thing. So, well, I the think that problem is going to happen when the food trucks 
stop delivering food to the stores, that's when the civil war is going to start breaking out. That's when people are going to be trying to break through your window and break your door down and take whatever you have. So if you don't have a sustainable house, you know, I mean, people could come through our windows easily. That's that would be no big deal. You'd have to have a barricade outside, people watching all the time. You'd have to have, uh, you know, a good arsenal of bullets just to defend. You know, you get three guys that that have gone through these scout classes or these classes like this. They're going to come guns ablazing. They're going to kick your door down, and they're going to take every ounce of food that you have. And if you don't have a sustainable place to live, you you're going to become subservient to that, or who knows if they're going to, you know, if people don't have food, are they going to start opening the FEMA buildings and feeding the people that don't have, and that's getting people in FEMA camps. Is that going to happen? That's another one. Like, wow. Hopefully, <laughs> this, this podcast is getting heavy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just, I, well, all I'm it's saying true, is what's going to happen. I, my question is What's going to happen in the beginning of the year when they're talking about possible food shortages? Is it is it for inflation only, so they can up the prices, or is it actually going to be, you know, lack of food? Real. Real? You know, what's funny? I think there's real strains on the system. Clearly, like I just saw a thing on the PBS NewsHour where uh, the Mississippi is at record low levels water-wise, and it's stopping the ships up. So like, that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Like all this, all these supplies going down the Mississippi are being gummed up and that adds to the problem. And so it, it's, I don't know if it's just one, it's going to be, unfortunately, it seems like several things, several bad things are happening. And you just, when do we reach that tipping point? You know, when these things all add up. And I think just like, honestly, I mean, yeah, obviously if you can be prepared to, to be sustainable on your own, that's ideal. But even in the short term, just like what I do kind of is I slowly just to get a few extra things. I'm not hoarding when I go grocery shopping. I make sure I have a few extra cans of tuna or a couple extra boxes of pasta because beans, can can green beans, can green beans uh, or even or or even rice, rice and beans. The problem, if you hold rice uh, for a long time, like a year, and you're storing it there's uh, eggs in your rice and they hatch. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. The moths and, and stuff like that. So what do you do? Do you just eat them? Depends how bad it is, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But I even just having like a, to me, like the Texas scenario again, when they're, when they're electrical, you know, just have a few week buffer, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, there's the, like, if the total collapse, that's a whole other scenario to be ready for But it's just like, Hey, have a, what if, what if you're snowed in for a few days? You know, it doesn't even have to be the end of civilization necessarily. I mean, Tony, where you're at, you know, if they dump 20 feet, you know, 20 inches of snow or whatever, that could shut you guys down for, you know, you could be, couldn't get to the store. So always having a little bit of that buffer um, is something to, as, as far as like self-defense people, that should be another aspect that people are thinking of. How do I, you know, have my necessities? Do I have a couple of gallons of extra just drinking water, you know, stashed away somewhere? Just start small and build up, um, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, the bigger, the better you can be, the better, but it just anything is, is better than nothing, I guess. Right. Well, we went the opposite direction. Yeah, that's okay. Well, <laughs> hey, that's reality. Reality-based self-defense isn't, isn't just defending yourself in the street, but 
Nope. Being prepared against, you know, multiple attackers. Uh, do you have knives placed around your house or your apartment? Do you have, you know, strategically placed uh, weapons? You know where they're at, where you could get to. Do you have do you have a weapon in your bathroom if you're in the bathtub? Yeah. Like like a karambit or a, or a gun or, you know, or a sword. And, and learning how to improvise weapons. If you're in a strange location, find something that you can use as a weapon, you know, learn to assess that quickly. Um, yeah. This is all my kind of shit. This is the stuff I like to do. You know, the, the, the reality based of it. Um, well, I didn't know any better. Yeah. You know? you know, another thing, another thing that I think uh, I would tell people to do is get a, Get a Ziploc bag and put a little bit, fill it half full of sand and then put black pepper and red pepper in it and shake it up. Keep it in your pocket. Yeah. yeah in case uh, you have to projectile a handful of yeah. of uh, sand. And that's so cheap, too. That's a good one to get you to get away from people or masses. You throw sand in their eyes. I had a buddy that always wore baseball caps. I don't, but he always did. And he had two fishing sinkers in the back <laughs> of that hat, you know, and he would, and Man. he got good with that. You know, um, I seen what he did to pieces of wood. You wouldn't want to get hit in the head with that hat of his, you know. There's a, they have a hat out they sell and it's got, it's called a snap hat or something like that. And it's, oh, uh, really? yeah. And it's got, it's got lead in it. And there it's, you go. It's like a flapjack. <laughs> nice. Flapjacks. I forget what it's called, but they just grab the visor and they twap you with it. Yeah, yeah. It's got lead or something in it. That's interesting. Yeah, but what I do this. Well, you know, I know it's getting late. You're probably in a hurry, but I got to tell you something. This has been the number one podcast. You're such uh, an interesting dude. No, you're an interesting fellow, man. Uh, Not only are you talented, you're articulate. Um, Joe, though, this modeling thing. Joe still thinks he's the best looking guy that ever lived. So you guys can hash that out amongst yourselves. (laughs) I only did it because I wanted to get into the acting aspect. And then my acting, I figured all my, all my uh, lines and monologues that I did were all comedy. So I was like, Hey, I think I want to go into comedy. Cause even though I didn't try to be funny, everything I did became funny. So I'm like, you know, I think I'm just going to tell jokes all the time. And, and so now when I, if I'm out in the street, like in a dangerous area, I'm always chewing on napkins or paper. And I've always, I always carry a straw, like I'm chewing on a straw. And if someone comes running up to me, I try to spitball them and I'm pretty good. I can hit them right in the eyes, but you got to have paper wet in your mouth the whole time. So that's it, man. You got to chew on it. Well, I highly recommend everybody seek out Eric for training even if you don't live in L- in a california region i'm sure he can set something up with you joe will put all your contact information eric on the youtube channel so people can uh reach out to you but man you've been great thank uh, you joe oh man no this is thank more you, than joe. i ever expected you're just cool you're just a cool uh, guy to hang out with and talk hey, we're the same age almost yeah yeah i mean i'm still i'm still no. yeah we are pretty much you know right. uh and so we we got a lot of life experiences. Um, I'll talk to Mike Zenga and ask him if he could do another uh, cat trusting series with you. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. You know, sometime next year, it'd be awesome. And 
Joe, what do you have to say about all this? Well, I'm just happy to be the fly on the wall here. I'm glad to get you two guys together and just listen. Yeah. And I'm happy yeah. for our listeners. But it's like, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad. I mean, this was like, I couldn't have asked for a better 100th episode. Um, this was just awesome. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, what a, what, a, what, a, what a great way to, see, you know, see this, this uh, in this kind of era of the podcast and start something new up. Uh, like I said, I, I've got a million other questions for you, Eric. So maybe, uh, you know, for hopefully we won't wait another 100 episodes to have you back um you know um yeah and maybe you know tony and i can head out to your place sometime and that would be great, be great. you guys are welcome anytime thank Same you here. so much and, anytime uh, you're in chicago look look me up look him up and we'll, we'll uh, be glad to do anything we can pick you up at the guys, airport you can crash here you know you guys I got live by each other no fortunately no, we're about no. an hour apart but oh. it don't matter we can triangulate joe's yeah. good at that um yeah. but anyway everybody I want to again, everybody say thanks for Eric to be out here on the show. And thank Eric, you, I hope to hear from you and see you soon. That's right. Thank well, you guys. Thank you. God bless thank you guys. Stay well. safe and healthy. You too. You too. See Bye, you guys. Buddy. Thank you. Thank you.